in some ways, the real problem is most of us who are thinking about using a quantum computer, we're trained in how to use a regular computer. We're going to have these students coming in who will learn about the quantum computer right at the beginning of their computing career. If there's going to be breakthroughs in what you can do with this stuff, and people who can come up with imaginative projects that no one would ever expect, it's going to be undergraduates and it's going to be RPI undergraduates because they have access to this machine. Welcome back to Crashing the Faculty Lounge. I'm your host, John Wexler, and today we have part two of our conversation with Dr. Jim Henler. Jim is the director of the Future of Computing Institute and world professor of computer, web, and cognitive sciences here at Rensselaer. He's also the director of the RPI-IBM Artificial Intelligence Collaboration. Last time we spoke about AI and how it's being used on the RPI campus. In this episode, Jim shares his expertise on ChatGPT, quantum computing, and the impact of this technology will have on the RPI community. We continue our conversation with Jim coming up on Crashing the Faculty Lounge. Jim, you had talked about, we had talked about a little bit earlier, um, ChatGPT. And once again, I'm going to ask mundane questions, for, you know, probably our students and parents and current students definitely know more than I. What exactly is ChatGPT and what is the good, bad and ugly about it? Because we hear, we, we're hearing more about it, and mostly it sounds negative when we hear it in mainstream media, but you're the expert, so I'm hoping you can help me. Yeah, sure. So um, what ChatGPT is, is one of, as I said, a, a family of large language models, we call it. And it's a special way of learning where what you're doing is really taking... If you think about the autocorrect on your phone, I'm typing a message and it's giving me three suggestions about the next word I might use. It's looking at the last few words I typed and it's been trained on thousands of examples. Okay, ChatGPT has been trained on over six billion examples. And instead of looking at the last few words, it looks at the last few thousand words. Now, sometimes things aren't that long. So if I said good and asked you what the next word would be, you might say morning, evening, day, movie, whatever. If I said uh, good morning, how are you is a pretty good possibility, right? So the probability, the more I look at what came before, the more I can figure out the probability of the next word. That's technically what's going on. So essentially what ChatGPT first looks at your question, then as it starts generating the answer, looks at the things it has generated, and starts saying, what's a great next word to put here? And what's great about that is it can be really useful because it's read all this stuff, it has has these things, so I use it fairly often to get started on something. Mm-hmm. The That's the good. <laughs> Right. The bad is it is just doing this probabilistic word thing. In fact, the um, term we use for it in the field is a statistical parrot. Think about a parrot who is trained on a zillion different things it could say. And when you said a word, the parrot would just start going. And then each word it generated would help it pick the next word. And you know, after a while, if you had enough training, enough a big enough dice to roll, as it were, yeah. you would start to get stuff that was meaningful. So that's what ChatGPT is to a certain extent. 
Now, the problem with that is people think it's actually looking things up, doing it. So, for example, it will sometimes tell me something like, hey, here is a paper, you know, you should cite. And I'll look for it, and that paper doesn't exist because all it did was said this would be a good word for the first name of a paper, and that would be followed by the second name, and, and it'll even tell me who wrote it. But that's all based just on statistical probabilities. It makes a lot of errors. Um, you know, it doesn't recognize everybody. I'm lucky enough that, you know, pretty much anybody who has a Wikipedia page, sure. you can ask about. If you ask it what awards I won, right. every time I do it, it gives me a different list. In fact, I want to move to the metaverse that it's in because it has given me the Nobel Prize oh. equivalent in computing. And, it has and why given does that me happen? all these major things. Why do those errors happen? It, it, I think those errors happen because essentially it's looking for things that correspond to other things. Right. So, for example, if I ask it pretty much any time I give a talk at a university, I say, tell me five famous alumni from this school. So far, it has never cat GPT four once got four of them right. Wow. Um, usually it only gets three. And that's the best one we have. Now, I'll give you an example. When I asked it for five famous alumni from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, one of the people it gave me was Dr. Shirley Ann Jackson, who's our former president. Right. She didn't graduate from RPI, but she's obviously very, very associated sure. with it. So from its probabilistic form, it's not looking at alumni as reasoning about where people went to college. It's reasoning about, you know, who are people who essentially are highly correlated with this place. Uh, my favorite one it ever gave me was uh, the University of Leicester in um, England, it once said uh, one of the famous alumni was King Richard III. Now, Richard III was not around when right. the university was founded, but he was found in a parking lot, his, his bones, at that gotcha. university. So again, it's associating things. Right. And that's kind of where the, the ugly tends to come in because right. sometimes those associations... Um, will take you into spaces you don't want to go. Right. Um, it will pick a word that was sort of lower probability because it can't always pick the best one, and that will sometimes cause it to go off on a tangent. So you really need a human interacting with it. In fact, one of the ways that um, th something I do in my classes I recommend to pretty much everybody these days is at the beginning of class, have your students take ChatGPT and write a two page, have it write a two-page essay on something they know a lot about, sure. their hometown, their favorite sport, the thing they do for a hockey, hobby, et cetera, and then fix it. <laughs> because what they'll almost always find is in those two pages, if you didn't know anything about the thing, it would sound very compelling. If you know about the thing, you find some things that are correct, some things that are wrong, some things that are a little bit wrong. So it might describe a particular town as having a vibrant nightlife when somebody who lived in that town might say, huh? Or it might say, so and so, this famous person was born in that town, and someone who knows that either that person right. or the town was like, that's not true. Sure. So, so again, you know, some people refer to this as hallucinations or things like that, but what it really is is just a product of how it works. 
And uh, one of the things we really want our students, and frankly, I want all the students everywhere to learn, is that if you use this to write your essays, it, you're not going to get an A in that course. What percent accuracy do you think, when you, if you were to use a chat GBT, let's say for a five-page five essay, something simple, what percent would you think would be accurate? It, you know, it, it really depends on the area, okay. uh, things like that. The other thing, of course, is uh, – well, I shouldn't say of course – the other thing is it was trained through 2021. Ah. So it also isn't really up to date. So for example, I wanted to ask it a question about uh, what's going on in Gaza and Israel at the time we're doing this uh, sure. recording. It knows nothing about that. Gotcha. So I, I, but I can ask it, hypothesize if Hamas did the following and Israel had this happen, what might be the responses? And then they'll give me some interesting answers. But again, it, it's hypothesizing. So now I, as a human reading that, need to think about that, do it. So it, you know, what I'd say is writing that five-page essay using ChatGPT, if it's something I know a lot about, I can probably write faster using ChatGPT because I can very quickly go through and fix the things. Gotcha. If it's something I don't know much about, I'm going to have to go line by line through what ChatGPT says and look it up somewhere else and figure out. So it'll improve my writing a little, but it won't improve the content. The other, the other thing one of our professors did was he looked at the essays that had come in from a particular assignment and found nine or ten of them that sounded very similar to each other. So he actually said, hey, class, we're going to have everybody read their essay out loud. And the first five people he called on, uh, all by the, by the time the third or fourth one finished, the whole class was giggling and oh, the wow. students were very embarrassed because it was pretty clear that they had used it. You know, right. It doesn't give you a different There's one no than it uniqueness. gives me. Yeah. It would give, we'd write. It, I mean, they're not identical, but, but very, they're very, awfully similar. Gotcha. Yeah. So again, so... Teaching people to use as a tool, great. Mm -hmm. Using it, thinking it's a smart thing that gets everything right, bad mistake. And just real quick, at RPI, we you, we are teaching students to use it as a tool and oh, how to yeah, best in the classroom and experiencing it. So then, when they go out, off you know after they graduate from here, they're you don't knowing how to best utilize it, but they still have to do basically they still have to do the work, right. You know, one of the things we've just started working about is it turns out there's a whole new field called prompt engineering, which is writing, generating the right questions in the right formats so that these large language models will give you good answers. Uh, it turns out starting salaries are in the hundred thousands and above. And um, many of our students have been kind of learning how to do it on their own and teaching their faculty how to do it. Nice. Uh, we're looking at trying to organize some of that and really do probably more boot camps on oh, that, that's great. how to, you know, take a one-week course and learn sure. something that no matter what your field, this gives you a fallback. Um, and there's a lot of belief that that's going to be, that job type will be around for a lot of years. It's sort of one Makes of the sense. things that, you know, people are worried about ChatGPT replacing writers and things like that. And the answer is there will be some of that but the new category of jobs that will come in is people who know how to use it to increase productivity. Right. As you can hear, there are a lot of great things taking place at Rensselaer. 
Rensselaer is located in Troy, New York, and our admissions office is open six days a week for visits. We'd love to have you come and visit and experience all this for yourself. To do so, you can go to go.rpi.edu backslash visit. To register to come to campus for a visit, go.rpi.edu backslash visit. So I wanted to pivot, and but not too dramatically. You had talked about quantum computing and how big a deal it is. And just to let everyone know, and Jim knows this obviously because he's been heavily involved in it, Rensselaer just announced that RPI will be the home of the first IBM quantum computer that will physically be on campus and that will allow faculty and students to have access to it for their research and, and works that they are doing. Um, first of all, if I explain that properly, Jim, and secondly, what impact do you see it having for students at all levels on campus, and then what impact do you have it seeing for faculty? So, yes, you described that correctly. Um, there are other universities that have, there are many different types of quantum devices. Ours will be just about the most powerful and the most general purpose. Okay. And um, there are a couple other universities around the world where IBM has the computer in one of their facilities and the campus has special access. We'll be the first one with the machine actually here. Um, and what that will do is let us have much more access to understanding it, to playing with it, to experimenting. Um, normally getting access to these things either through the cloud or through a special things is quite expensive. Mm -hmm. Here the, the campus will be paying that expense and the students therefore and researchers will be able to try things out in projects. Um, we've already started a student quantum club uh, wow. run by one of my colleagues, and she's off to the races helping them learn some of the languages and things like that. So what will happen is, is students at any level will be able to come up and say, hey, I have an idea for something I think quantum computing would be good for. Can I try it out? And that's that's a big deal because most schools not only could you not even find who to ask but then you'd have to find you know do we have a deal with some provider how much does it cost things like that we will be able to provide that service on campus we've been doing that with our supercomputer so you know at many campuses including the one i used to work at if my students wanted access to a supercomputer, I had to pay for it, sure. and it was not cheap. So yeah. I typically had to get a research grant, which meant that pretty much only grad students could use it. At RPI, our uh, supercomputer, uh, when we teach our, di our distributed parallel computing course, we actually have the students using our supercomputer. If, if any project wants to use that computer for their AI research or related, we have another machine for non-AI research, um, it's free. That's cool. And we want the quantum machine to be run that same way, so you don't have to go get a big grant in, in quantum uh, chemistry or right. how we're going to do the physics. And we've actually had some conversations at a, at a very high level of campus when we were making the decision to bring it where we said, you know, in some ways, the real problem is most of us who are thinking about using a quantum computer, we're trained in how to use a regular computer. We're going to have these students coming in who will learn about the quantum computer right at the beginning of their computing career. 
if there's going to be breakthroughs in what you can do with this stuff and people who can come up with imaginative projects that no one would ever expect, it's going to be undergraduates and it's going to be RPI undergraduates because they have access to this machine. So in hearing you, what you're foreseeing is that the students coming in, students here now, and then the students coming in will be on the cutting edge of technology that will then, when they go off campus after they graduate, they'll be ahead of the curve oh, for sure, what yeah. they know and how to implement it in their different, or whether they do research or working in the corporate sector. That's right. And the other thing is um, it's just a different way of thinking about computation. So our students will have learned traditional model of computation, AI model of computation, and quantum model of computation. Mm -hmm. You know, you asked me before to predict five or ten years in the future, and I sort of ducked the question sure. because now I can answer it. Good. Because what we really believe is that the future is going to be the combination of these things. Okay. And students who've only learned one or the other of these techniques will still be in demand, but students who really understand across this, I think, will be in much more demand, especially as, you know, right now we're not likely to see the quantum computer used to solve some big problem and, you know, major solution in, in one step. It will prove it possible. Five, ten years from now, it'll be a major part of the computing landscape. So in a sense, looking at AI, ten years ago, you had to be a specialist in the field to say, hey, you know, if someone would give us a billion dollars and let us have, like, you know, more computer power than the whole world has at the moment, what we could do with AI. Well, now we want our students asking that same kind of question about what we can do with quantum. Yeah, and of course, for our faculty, right. it's a leg up on, on real world problems. So where qu quantum computing is most useful at the moment is where the, the physical interactions that are being modeled happen at the quantum level which is what happens in molecular biology, which is what happens in chemicals, mm -hmm. uh, chemistry. It, it's what happens when new materials, nanomaterials are created. Um, so there's that whole level of it. And then I'm old enough to remember when it was really hard to program a computer. Now it's something pretty easy to get your hands on the starting level of that. Right. We're just at the beginning of quantum computing. So another thing we will have going here is a big project. And how do we make it usable? How do we make it so somebody who's a chemist doesn't have to learn about laser gates and, and right. superposition and right. things like that to be able to use it? So we really think this is going to revolutionize the way we think about computing on this campus and then spread out from here to everywhere. And in fact... Um, the machine that will be coming here, because right. these quantum computers at the moment are custom built essentially, sure. already exists. Right. And it's down at IBM and we can use it over the internet. Sure. So we can actually, you know, sort of use it like a cloud service. So we already have students who are starting to write the program. That's great. Once it's here, they'll be able to have much closer interaction. They'll have a whole group of students working together. We're actually putting it in a room where not only will the quantum computer be there, but it's right now one of our major campus computer centers. So students will have desks where they can sit together. You know, you don't access the quantum computer by wa walking up and typing into the con right. quantum computer. You access it through your laptop or yeah. whatever. So our students will be sitting there around whiteboards, sketching out ideas and trying them. Right. And uh, we're really excited about it. And it's also 
a really cool looking machine. Yeah, I've seen a pic- the pictures look awesome. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here for part three of our three-part series with Dr. Jim Henwer. Until next time, I'm John Wexler, and this is Crashing the Faculty Lounge.